This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with actors John Bell and Jessica Tovey. John and Jessica star in Bell Shakespeare's production of Moliere's classic comedy, The Miser. They discuss how they've brought the new adaptation by Justin Fleming to life. It's now showing at the Arts Centre in Melbourne. I do have with me John Bell and Jessica Tovey, who are actors in the production of The Miser, which has been put on by Bell Shakespeare. Now, The Miser is a play by Moliere who is a French neoclassical playwright of the 17th century and um, his works were played in France for many, many years and uh, he certainly had a, a connection with the king for quite a lot of that time and uh, and certainly had commissioned works as well. So he's such a well-known figure in France um, and maybe not as well-known in Australia, which is why we get to um, highlight his great work and uh, these wonderful actors. So John Bell, who... Uh, as you may realise by the name of Bell Shakespeare, was the founding artistic director of the company and he stepped out of um, his brief retirement to play this wonderful role, the miser, the actual miser, Harpagon, and Jessica Tovey, who is a, a, another great actor in her own right on screen and on stage, and is playing the role of Valère. So I'm welcoming you both now. Hi there. Good morning. Yeah. It's a pleasure to have you. And... Um, Thank you for the work that you do because this play so needed to be seen by more than just people in Sydney. You've toured it to Canberra and now it's here in Melbourne. So you're getting around Australia pretty well. Yeah. At least some of it. Yeah, at least some of <laughs> you it. You can't do right. all of it. No, well, uh, the Bell Shakespeare Company does perform to about 37 venues with some of the plays. Mm. They go right around the country. In fact, Jess did that. I did uh, two years ago. I did Merchant of Venice, yeah. which oh, toured 27 is, venues. I, think. I saw that tour. one too. It's a very, right. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I was the Porsche in that one. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But this one's just one. this one's just playing Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it is a, quite a big effort because the I mean obviously the set is quite um, simple but in a good way because obviously mm. it's then letting you the actors really take centre stage and yeah. and as you've said in um, other interviews this is a really ensemble piece and it's you're carrying each other there's not really just the one star you know player obviously John you're definitely have a central role in in terms of the character and his the way that he impacts upon all the other characters in this play um but certainly the the strength of all of your acting certainly shines through it's a bit like being in the circus i think mm. you know? <laughs> a bit like on the trapeze someone has to be there to catch you yeah. and if they're not there on the cue you're going to crash to the ground so we do feel a bit like circus performers and i think the the production itself has a bit of that feel. It's mm. um, pretty rambunctious and we're almost in a circular stage, like a bit of like a circus uh, performance, and it's very out front to the audience, sharing it with the audience. There's so much uh, of the dialogue or monologues are directed straight to the audience, asides mm. and, uh, you know, gags and so on. So, yet it's a pretty, very lively show. Mm. And, of course, Molière had a troupe of actors that he was part of an ensemble, so he would obviously write characters specifically for certain people, which I think allows to have these very distinct personalities on stage 
you know, which were the actors in his mm. troupe, but also mm. the characters in, in this world. So, I mean, I think our company works very similarly. It's quite an eclectic group of actors, but everyone has their moment to shine and then and then supports the other cast member when they're having their moment. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's so true. It is true. And in a lot of comedies, you have kind of high-status characters and low-status characters. But even, I guess, what you would class as a traditionally low-status character of, you know, a servant, for example, mm. you know, has this rise and presence and importance, vital importance in terms of the plot, but also importance in terms of the jokes to actually work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they are you know, quite hilarious. Like well, I think commonly, I mean, Shakespeare was quite similar, and John can correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> but the, the servant roles often um, were very important roles. They often added a lot of comedy and they often added a lot of insight into the world. It was often the richer um, uh, hierarchy members who were kind of had these foibles and it's mm-hmm. actually the the lower class uh, members of the troupe that would kind of wink at the audience and, and, you know, have a little bit of insight into the world. It's a very old tradition that goes right back. You can find the same thing in the old Greek and Roman comedies. There's always the smart servants who outwit their masters, mm. and which would have appealed, of course, to a much larger audience of people who <laughs> yeah. were uh, in much the same position as themselves. That's very true. And um, so this play is quite special in the sense that, obviously, given that it was written in French, any translation is going to be an interpretation of what the French is. And um, and also, I it strikes me that I think it was written in prose, which is quite rare for Moliere, and he tended to like other forms. But um, this was really the, one of his last plays. And what really struck me in your play was that you you go from I guess prose to rhyming and that that it kind of it falls into maybe um a, a segment of rhyming that really creates a momentum a kind of sense of playfulness and it has its own kind of quality when you add that sense of fun and and rhyme to situations yeah mm. um if I just give a very brief explanation mm, of that yeah um, Molly I did write in verse most of the time um, but he also acted the leading roles. And uh, by the time he wrote The Miser, he couldn't quite manage the... His, he had uh, tuberculosis and he couldn't manage the, the breath to carry him through all the lines of verse. So he decided to write the part and therefore the whole play in mm-hmm. prose. Uh, it's one of the few plays that he'd, where he did that. And subsequently it wasn't very popular when it first came out. People thought we like to hear the rhymes, we like to hear the verse and the wit in the verse. So Justin Fleming, who's done our translation, decided to put it into verse, just as Moliere would have liked to have done if he'd been able to. (laughs) So it it, it sounds much more like the Moliere we're used to. Uh, I think if it was just prose, it would be flatter. Uh, But in fact, uh, in this one, um, Justin has employed various different forms of verse, sometimes rhyming couplets, sometimes Mm. it's the, the verse, the rhymes come every fourth line, depending on the situation and the and the characters. So it's very flexible. But it's a very, very Australian translation. Mm. Uh, you look at various English translations, um, which I think are a little bit uh, twee, a little bit sort of um, archaic now. Some of the American ones are a bit too broad and a bit, you know, um, yo-ho-ho. But this one is uh, <laughs> unashamedly Australian, and I think that's part of its appeal, that we mm. like to hear our own vernacular in the mouths of these characters. Yes. Well, it's a little bit surprising. You're caught by surprise when you start to hear some of the sayings that mm. we are quite familiar with. And I did write a lot of them down, so <laughs> I'll have to pick some out because mm-hmm. they're all gold, really. But um, 
I noticed Fair Suck of the Sauce Bottle, which is a bit of a Kevin Rudd-ism. Yeah. Uh-huh. There was also Dead, Buried and yes. Cremated. I'm so glad you Attorney. got that one. Yeah. You can Attorney Abbottism. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We stand backstage, Damien and I, one of the other cast members and I, we sit backstage every night and listen to see if the audience they get, get that it. reference. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I was like, oh, politics. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and there's also, you know, a lot of talking, a lot of not only just colloquialisms but... Um, maybe just like light swear words like bastard mm. or ass, mm. and it certainly puts that kind of extra oomph into some of the feeling that exists negative feeling towards the miser harpagon because a lot of people do have quite strong feelings about him and his stinginess and yeah. his um, miserliness that is really impacting upon these people's lives, the, his family's life and also his servants. Absolutely. Yes, I think any translation has to try to capture the spirit of the original mm. and Moliere was flirting with danger, of course, by um, being so outspoken and critical of people and using language that was, um, you know, just on the edge of being offensive to an yeah. aristocratic audience. So uh, I think it's what made it so exciting that, you know, mm. how far will Moliere push it this time? Yeah, and yeah. sometimes his plays were banned briefly, like Tartuffe was. Tartuffe was, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it certainly is, it does have this kind of sharp, acerbic wit to a mm. lot of parts of Moliere and that's what I find so fresh about it is that it still cuts mm. when you yeah. hear it. And that's balanced I think by a great warmth and humanity yeah. especially when you get to the end of the play um, there is uh, there's always family as there is in Shakespeare. Families are the, mm. the you know where, where you start and finish uh, sometimes comically, sometimes tragically but in this case you do get a lot of uh, quarrelling between members of the family but in the end a big reconciliation and that's sends you out with a bit of a glow, I think. Yeah, yeah, it does. I want to um, to talk a little bit about your characters and um, I guess how you workshopped the script and worked together as an ensemble to find how this would work physically and mm. also vocally because they're clearly both vitally important to the play. It's, it's a physical comedy but it's mm. also the delivery of the lines seems to be really important. So... Valère, that's mm. Jessica, your role, used to be um, played as a man and yeah. in this play it's been played as a woman. Mm. So, therefore, um, Elise, who you are pursuing as a, a love love interest mm. and you're deeply, you're both deeply in love, um, Elise is Harpagon's daughter and so you have this great opening scene where you're already kind of challenging what our conceptions are of yeah. Molière. It's it's really fun. I mean that was such a um, it, I was so glad that Pete the director came came to me and, and offered Valera as a woman. Um, I, I mean I think it does lots of wonderful things to the play. I mean automatically when you, the play opens with two women in a um, you know in, a embrace, <laughs> um, you all automatically know that you're not going to see a traditional version of Moliere. Um, and it, I think that same-sex relationship really brings this play into the now and, and it tells you it's a contemporary version of this show. Uh, and, yeah... Uh <laughs> Just try, lost my train. No, of that's okay. What I was thinking is, um, and I agree, it does change the dynamic of the situation, and that I guess a woman has agency in a situation where we're talking about giving women away and arranging their lives and marriages. And um, the other, the flip side of, of that is also Harpagon. You having decided that you want to marry a woman who is probably half your age, mm-hmm. at least, mm-hmm. and um, and who is also the love interest of your son but not 
that you were aware of that at the beginning. And it, it certainly is really surprising that even when you watch things like, you know, arranged marriages and talk of mm. dowries, that it still is relevant today because a lot of people do have that situation where they have marriages arranged for them in different countries and That's even right. here. Mm. So. Yeah. It's a, and the gendered power dynamics as well still mm. certainly exist in yes. different forms. And, and, the, and there are still father-daughter conflicts about who you're going to go out yes. and who you're going to marry. I mean, that that's, goes across the board, I think, even without the sort of the dowry um, uh, element. It's still mm. And expectations of what society thinks how you should behave. I mean, the one, one of the wonderful things, I think, about our version of the play is that Justin wrote this translation not thinking Valère would be a woman. Mm. And, in fact, when I stepped into that role, none of the... The only thing that was changed were pronouns. So that opening scene starts with um, Elise and Valère having this discussion about why they can't be together. And in the original context of the play, it was because Valère is poor and is a servant and therefore society will not accept them. Mm. But, of course, when you just watch two women say those words, even though none of the dialogue was changed, we automatically see it as the difficulties of two young women feeling that society will reject their love because of their gender. Um, so it's quite amazing how a lot of the the issues that Moliere was thinking of, you know, all that time ago actually still work and we just, you know, slightly change the situation. Mm. But those, those um, expectations of society are still... Um, I think, you know, still very relevant to today. Yes, and the line that does really transform is when you are saying, don't judge me like men, all other yeah. men. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, um, Justin was going to change that line and I oh, said, really? please don't change that line because I think it actually works really well as a, as a w- coming out of a woman's it's, mouth. It, d- yeah. it really does. <laughs> no offence to the men out here. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Lots of actors, as you said, it's an eclectic cast, have different approaches to acting. And, for example, even if you just bring it back to drama schools, there are very different approaches from mm. NIDA versus VCA versus WAPA. And presumably there are a whole range of ways one could approach a text from a period such as Moliere's and such as Shakespeare, for example. Did you, when you're approaching a comedy, have a particular way of of moving into the text and kind of fleshing it out and finding the way that your character moves or finding, I guess, the way that you're going to portray this character? I think we all have different approaches mm. and uh, when we first meet, but we have been sort of bonded in a way by having movement classes every day. Um, we had an, a, a movement instructor or teacher, Nigel Poulton, who has a very particular um, way of working. And so we did exercises and, uh, and experiments in movement with him, which were partly about comedy and comedy timing and how to take the stage, but also, I think, gave us a universality of physical language to some extent. Mm-hmm. We can all play our own variations on that, but there's a baseline there of what uh, the, the movement... Uh, shape might be mm-hmm. and similarly we had a, a vocal uh, a voice coach who was very particular about picking up on uh, pronunciations and uh, hitting the consonants and hitting the last the last word in the line for the rhyme's sake, the dynamic of the line so between the, the two of them and us all sort of uh, you know, uh, subscribing to that I think that's given us a, a, a commonality although the actors, as you say, are so disparate. We can all play our own riff on that and bring our own mm. sense of what's funny and what's comic so that uh, we're not all tarred with the same brush. Yeah. There's room for individual uh, comic shtick going on. <laughs> yeah, everyone is bringing a very different strength. Which I think actually works for yeah. the play and what it makes does. it so joyful is that mm. you're not seeing this kind of 
um, cardboard cutout version of Moliere or of how you portray it or how you, you know, do the dialogue. I certainly had very strong ideas about um, Valère when I uh, was reading the piece, but I have to say one of the biggest influences for me in that space was my costume. You know, as soon as I saw that, it was the opposite of what I expected to be wearing and it completely changed uh, the way that I stand and the way that I walk because it's quite constricting for yeah. those that have seen it and yeah. um, looks like something out of Germany in the 40s. You know, it's, it's um, very regimental and it, yeah. it changed. It's high-waisted. It's high-waisted skirt. and very high-collared yeah. and, and it's mm. very um, tight and constricting and you know, I think that's that's the beautiful part of a rehearsal room is that you actually have uh, lots of different creative minds that come together to help influence um, how that that piece comes together. Mm. Yeah, and I did notice. I mean, the, co- the costumes are wonderful because they're kind of you know peach and mint and lavender mm. and baby blue, and it has this great statement in and of itself of the types of characters and Elise's um, costume is a lot more loose and flowy and, you know, the top part, parts of it are see-through, so that's kind of a different way of her expressing her character. Mm. And, I mean, John, you get some amazing costumes. <laughs> your The first half of the play, is, your costume is just so perfect. Well, it's absolutely off, the, you know, from the, the op shop. Yeah. The, 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 the daggiest, daggiest old grandpa outfit you could possibly imagine. The slippers were pretty slippers special. And, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the grandpa singlet, and uh, he's just too mean to spend anything on himself at all, <laughs> except when he falls in love and wants to impress this young girl. So he goes nuts and uh, gets into a sort of an Elvis costume or a bit of a John Travolta turn. Yeah, uh, glittery loafers, dreadful toupee, yeah. and the lot to sort yeah. of uh, you know try to take <laughs> take take the years or take the years away. So that, that's quite fun to, yeah. uh, to go that to that extreme. And it's certainly contrasted to when, because in the first half you're wearing, as you say, this quite muted Mm -hmm. um, tones of like beige and brown. And then I see this glistening diamond looking ring and a kind of sparkling watch. And they're the two things that kind of stand out as being not fitting your outfit. that's right. And it, it certainly like hints at what your whole life is about, which is this kind of safeguarding and and denial of being rich so that people don't steal your wealth. He's paranoid yeah. about mm. wealth. Yes, I did a, quite a bit of research into miserliness and what it means. It's a lot to do with paranoia and, uh, and just terror of being mm. being discovered and a security in material things that, in fact, are no use to you. If you've got all your money locked up in a box, it's, <laughs> mm. it's no use to you at all. Yeah. It becomes just an, an encumbrance, a sort of a, you know, a, a weight around your neck. Yeah. Which he, I think he might have, he almost learns by the end of the play, but not quite. Not, not quite, yeah. He's not quite smart enough to realise <laughs> everything he's lost. Only a faint inkling that I've got this box of money, but I've lost my family. So what's the, you know, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the, the big deal? Mm-hmm. Mm. Was it the last scene in the first half where you're character does kind of spin into this paranoia and you see the lights kind of dim and you know you go into this you're kind of catastrophizing like life isn't worth living and maybe i've even stolen it and (laughs) you just kind of go on this real rambling thought train which really is quite revealing of your character yes it's a very bold thing to do i think on moliere's part it's a quite a um existential moment for uh, for harpagon uh, he's totally taking money away and he's just floating in space, uh, nothing to hang on to. Mm. So it is uh, quite a, you know, a frightening moment for him, I think. Um, it's only when he has the, the opportunity to, to 
get the money back again that he comes back to life and finally does secure it, but then he realises at what cost. Mm. And it goes to show that just how important parts of the production are, like the sound and the music adds such value as well. Mm. And you kind of hear a kind of clarinet-type instrument at the beginning playing some kind of upbeat but curious music and then you hear some piano and it really does add very gently to the feelings of the people there and the kind of dynamic that you have on stage, which I loved. But I did want to ask one thing that was quite obvious to me and I was wondering why everyone on stage except you, John, was wearing a kind of light shade of mm. white makeup. And I wondered, I have my own theories, but I'd like to know what your <laughs> thought was as to why that happened. Yeah, um, when we would thinking about the production and the, and the costuming um, as well as the makeup, there was this decision to uh, kind of had one foot in the now and one foot back in, you know, the 17th century um, as it would have been performed. And it does have mm. this very kind of a Marie Antoinette marionette um, face makeup on. Uh, but it's very light and then it's kind of uh, contrasted with iPads and, and something slightly more modern. But there was a discussion that, you know... Um, that if we were trying to think of who these people were now, it's it's the one percent. It's the people that go to the Met Gala and the people that wear outrageous fashion that, you know, is on a catwalk, but no one would actually ever wear in the street. Mm. But of course, the only person who would never dress like that or be like that is Harpagon. That he would never spend that money on himself. Uh, he would never take the time to have the self care regime of putting on makeup in the morning. And I, th- I mean, I think it helps the audience very clearly see the distinction between him and, and the rest of the household. Even the mm. servants are kind of painted up. And, um, you know, even if you're poor in this world, you're still not that poor. Um, but, of course, he sits outside of that and is um, not a part of that world. Yeah. Well, it was written at the time of the Ancien Regime, which is literally Marie Antoinette era mm. and Louis Fourteenth. So it was a time of opulence for the rich in particular. So when we're talking about wealth, it was excessive wealth. Mm. Mm. But that's uh, still the... the- the case today. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. People with extraordinary, unheard of wealth, and yet, uh, you know, how much of the world's living in dire, dire poverty and, uh, you know, at risk. So uh, that was important. I think one of our early discussions, we decided that it, it could be set somewhere like the Trump Tower. So we've got those golden walls and golden floor, and it's, uh, it's, it, mm. that is a nod to the Trump Tower and as someone who's extremely rich but <laughs> pretty tight fisted yeah. and doesn't throw it around. So that was uh, where we started from, that uh, there is this world of incredible wealth that none of us can even imagine and yet are in the streets outside people are living out of garbage bins that's I think Moliere was saying much the same. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably discount the type of harsh criticism that Moliere can do through a comedy and a satire and and that kind of delivery makes it possibly more palatable. That's right. Yes, he was um he had to be pretty wary, of course, to keep mm. his head. Yeah. <laughs> a bit like Shakespeare, much the same situation. You have to sort of disguise your message by um, where you set the play and say, oh, it's not about us, it's about long ago and far away. But uh, the one case where he did run into trouble, as you said, was with Tartuffe, mm. which uh, he's, he's attacking um, hypocrisy. People at the time said he was attacking religion. And he said, no, I'm not attacking religion, I'm attacking the hypocrites, and that's why they don't like my play. It's that universality that Shakespeare has that Moliere yeah, also has. They do have quite a few things in common. The mm. fact that they're both 
actor managers who wrote their own plays, wrote for themselves, wrote for a company, and toured with the company all around the country. There are very strong parallels, I think, between them. And of course, they weren't the only ones. There were dozens of other people doing the same thing, only they've faded from history. But uh, so true. it was part of a very big industry. There were obviously people like Cornel and Racine <clears throat> who were more on the tragedy side yes. as well. But certainly, you're right, within that period, there aren't really anyone else who stands out to the extent that Moliere does. No, no, yeah. not from that, not from France. No. no, yeah, no. I was lucky enough to visit his grave in uh-huh. Pere Lachaise uh, Cemetery, mm-hmm. and it was so moving to see because there was this one single perfect red rose uh-huh. that was growing yeah. out. Oh wow! How from, yeah, and it was mm. just amazing. It had mm. the dew from the rain on right. it, and I just thought this is the most poetic <laughs> <laughs> cemetery. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. just amazing. There is a kind of reverence for Moliere in France that perhaps people in England or even here may not quite know of. Yes, and of course uh, that wasn't so at the time. He was popular with the, the king, Louis XIV, mm. uh, um, patronised him and uh, encouraged him. But when it came to his death, he wasn't allowed to be buried in uh, in church ground. He'd be buried in a sort of outside church property and uh, a very humble funeral with no religious rites because actors were still regarded as outlaws and uh, next best, best thing to criminals. So, mm. um, you know... Um, we think it was a, a kind of a glamorous life, but in fact it was far from it. You were hanging on by the by your teeth to any advantage you could, you know, any patron you could claim to protect you from the people who wanted to tear you down. Mm. I want to quickly close out this discussion by talking about your favourite parts of the play or your favourite lines. It may not be your own line, it could be other people's lines. Mm. But I, I wrote down some of my ones, um, <laughs> which there are so many, but I really liked Harpagon says, my boot might talk to your ass," And that was to La Flesh, I believe. Yeah, to the servant, yeah. Um, and he says, now there's a charming dismissal. And there were some really great ones, even like acts where you're kind of wiping things on your scarf mm-hmm. and it's kind of almost like repulsive mm-hmm. and yeah there are just so many like great colloquialisms and you're talking in a very Aussie way are yes. there any kind of ones that you that stick out to you as the bits you enjoy most every night well I, I've got quite a few but yeah. uh, I like the way it swings from being sort of um, very formal and uh, pretentious to, um, to the colloquial. So one moment, um, Habergon will say, um, Oh, my b- depraved daughter, most unworthy of a father like me. Then he'll turn around and say, Don't you come a raw prawn with me, you traitor. So it <laughs> slips from being something yeah. almost Shakespearean uh, rhetoric to something very colloquial and very Aussie. And I quite enjoy that switch Flipping. back and forth. Mm. Mm. I think my favourite part is when um, John Bell dances on stage like John Travolta um, <laughs> and, and refers to Not young, quite like young men. <laughs> he refers to young men as a mob of castrated galahs. Oh, I think is probably so my favourite line. One. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Justin's done a great job. He's very, very mm. funny, very witty. And yeah. uh, I love hearing some of those old Australian phrases, um, you mm. know, re- reborn because they're slipping away from us. And yes. uh, it, it's our language. It is. Mm. I just bought a dictionary of Australian right. colloquialisms from um, Sydney University oh, and wow. it's a treasure trove. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we should start a campaign. To, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Perhaps on this, on this program you could start... Start a, using yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to... St- that's a great idea. I'll have a... I'll slip it in and I'll have a quota of colloquialism. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> John Bell and Jessica Tovey, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and congratulations to you and your fellow cast members and crew for doing such a phenomenal job with this play. Thanks, Thank Amy. You very it's much. been a great pleasure Thank for you. us too. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.